Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. An engineer by training, Greg Lambrecht is an innovator, inventor and entrepreneur who works in the medical as well as the wine sectors. Listen to us chat about needles, noble gases, superglue, karmic debt, how he came up with the idea for the Corovin wine preservation system, the do's and don'ts of using one, his love of running, and how one first clothes chateau showed in the door. Hello, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Uh, my pleasure. And just, just tell us where you are, because I know you move around a lot. Yeah, well, I'm actually relatively close to home. I'm in a small town of Woburn, Massachusetts at my spinal implant company. So I have Corbin uh, as half of my life in wine and the other half of my life is in spine surgery. So they're, they're two separate offices as well as businesses, presumably. They are indeed. Yeah. Uh, some of the investors are shared, mm. um, but otherwise they're completely separate. Because you wouldn't want to get them confused, would you? <laughs> I don't know. I've had quite a few great bottles of wine with spine surgeons around the world. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that, yeah. Just tell us a bit about where you were born and, and brought up. I mean, you're American, born in the States. Yeah, I'm a first-generation American. Um, my mother was born in Austria. Uh, my father was born to a German family here in the United States. Uh, and I was uh, born in New York City, uh, in Manhattan, um, Lenox Hill Hospital, where I currently do spine surgery uh, with our implant. Uh, so it's a uh, I'm a I'm an American, but I've I, I spent my first 11 years in New York. I spent my high school years in California, in Southern California. Uh, learned to surf, uh, tasted my first wines, and then uh, went to university in, back in Boston at MIT, and it sort of pulled me in. So, I mean, was wine part of your life growing up? I and mean, presumably, if you've got these immigrant parents, I mean, presumably they, they knew about wine and they're more likely to know about, about wine than, than possibly first-generation Americans. Interestingly, no. I mean, my, my father is a type 1 diabetic, or was a type 1 diabetic, and so uh, he really never drank alcohol. His trick in business meetings was to order a scotch on the rocks and just let it sit there. Uh, so he didn't drink at all, and my mother drank rarely. Uh, and so I wasn't really raised with wine. I, I uh, was introduced to wine uh, by some miscreant friends in high school. I, I was 16, but I looked older. I had a full beard. Uh, I, was, I was kind of a hippie as a kid. And uh, they were like, Greg looks 21. Let's drive up to Napa Valley and see if we can use him to get us into these tasting uh, rooms. The old fake ID thing. Yeah, yeah I, didn't, <laughs> I did have a fake ID. I did not use it. Wow, because um, of the beard. Yeah, exactly. I just, I, I looked the part. <laughs> was, I mean, my, my first wine revisit was in California with fake ID to, to Christian Brothers. And I, I was in the States on a scholarship program and, and, and we ended up in, in, the, in California, in the Napa Valley and, and went to Christian Brothers. So. Yeah, they're, they're much better at catching us nowadays, Tim. I don't know. <laughs> Our first experiences would have gone as well. And maybe I would have had my first prison sentence. But uh, no, I walked into Tony Peju's winery. Um, and that was it. It was his first vintage. Mm. Uh, so he was super excited that somebody was walking in the door. Uh, and and he was incredibly generous as a host with his time and mm. tasting me on wine. I remember tasting the first sip of wine going, how did you make this? And you were 16? I was 16. Oh, with a beard? 
with a beard. Right. Uh, not a, not a, a huge beard, but a beard enough. And uh, and I remember tasting that wine, and and it it really changed my life. I I fell in love with whatever was in that glass. I I loved how it smelled. I loved how it tasted, and I loved that it, that none of those things smelled or tasted like like the grapes I'd been introduced to, you know, over the course of my entire life. Mm. Uh, and I just, I asked him how he made it. And, and he actually walked me through the whole process of production. And it was a, it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience. And my friends who were waiting outside in the car uh, for my signal to come in, uh, got, got nervous that I had been arrested because I, <laughs> I probably spent 30 minutes before I remember. <laughs> Cause you were still talking to him. I know I'm a bad, I'm a bad front man. <laughs> Tell us a bit about your grandfather, because he seems to be an early, an important early influence on you. I've heard you mention him in a couple of interviews. He was a designer and an innovator, a bit like you, but in a slightly different field. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, war hardens people. Uh, my mother's father was an aeronautics engineer um, who was born in Graz, Austria, uh, which became part of the uh, Axis force and the, the the German military. And he uh, developed one of the first jet engines as a PhD thesis, uh, and then he worked on guided missile systems. Um, for the Axis powers, right? For the Axis powers during World War II, in, in, they wound up in Pinamunda in Germany. Uh, he was working on guidance systems for V-1, V-2 missiles. He worked, he designed the very first radar or ra- radio-controlled missile and radar-guided missiles. Wow. Um, and this, you know, he was not he was not a fan of Hitler's, mm. uh, but he was uh, I think the, the OSS, which became the CIA, mm. uh, their file on him said apolitical, uh, interested in the science. And, mm. and he was uh, he developed this missile called the Schmetterling, the butterfly that was used uh, to catastrophic effect uh, from air to sh- air to ship. Uh, and and sunk uh, one massive uh, ship uh, with just a single bomb that was dropped at a wow. distance and guided into that ship from that distance and and so you know he I knew him he was an autocratic Austrian very hard man he was captured by the American military he actually um, took his whole team and fled to Switzerland in 1944 and was captured as part of the um, the paperclip project paperclip, which ah, the okay. Americans ran, yeah. uh, ran yeah. to catch German scientists, and yeah. and he wanted to be caught by the Americans, uh, and he came to the U.S. and later designed guidance systems for the Sidewinder Hawk and tow missiles, um, and he came up to he was a he was a man of few words, especially to a child. I mean, he died when I was twelve, but he uh, said a sentence to me, maybe two sentences that changed my life. Uh, he said, "You know, you seem like a smart." fellow, uh, you should go into medicine or energy. We'll never have enough of either. And uh, you know, he said, weapons are basically done. Uh, and, I, and I, I wish he'd been right, you know. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wish he had been. Mm. Yeah. So he, I feel like I've got a relatively massive, I started off feeling like I had a relatively massive karmic debt uh, mm. from the work that he had done. Mm. And uh, I mean, the axial flow compression jet engine is a great thing. Right? <laughs> we use it to fly around the world. It's great that he was involved. Uh, and that's helped, certainly. Mm. And guided systems, guidance systems have helped. And you can think positively about 
the the positive aspects of it. But there was obviously a lot of violence that was, you know, it was part of the 20th century. Mm, sure. And yeah. uh, and so I I I went into college. You studied engineering, right? I mean, you seem yeah. to have, a, I've, I've lost count of the number of degrees you seem to have it, but you seem to be sort of accumulating these engineering degrees. There are at least two, yeah, right? Yeah, well, they're, they're all purpose-driven and I'm a purpose-driven guy. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I said, okay, well, energy, we'll never have enough of any of it. Or, or And I believe that the United States consumes 25% of the energy on the planet and mm. has a much smaller fraction of the population. Imagine you could spread that energy to the rest of the world in equal parts. We could raise the quality of life for everybody. Mm. And so I looked at different forms of power and, and fusion power seemed like the great new thing. I was influenced by an article in Scientific American mm. that said that fusion is going to be the future. Well, it's, it's sadly still going to be the future. Mm. Um, but I went to the top institution in the United States, MIT, and I, that's why I applied there, was they were one of the leaders in fusion power. Uh, them in Princeton. And so I took all the undergraduate and graduate level courses while I was there and uh, realized it wasn't going to work. Mm. But just talk a little bit about needles, because um, I like a quote from you. You said you're very good at needles. I mean, you don't look to be like an addict <laughs> of any kind, but um, where did you develop your expertise with needles? That was the medical side of your life, wasn't it? Yeah, great fortune. So I realized that fusion wasn't going to work. Uh, spent a year and a half in Japan working on the next fusion reactor. And so came back to MIT to figure out what to do next. And, and my grandfather's sentence, medicine, was ringing my head. And, and a professor came up to me and said, hey, I've got this consulting job for J&J. They're going to be designing this new peripheral J&J, &J, Johnson Johnson. Yeah. Johnson & Johnson. Yeah. They're going to be designing this new peripheral IV catheter. They need your help. Um, you're an innovative guy. Go, go figure this out. And that was the very first medical product that I, that I was a part of, uh, a needle that went into a vein in the, in the periphery. And, and that project led me to a job at Pfizer where I was hired by this guy named Josh Macauer. You talk about collecting degrees. He's an MD, MBA, engineer from MIT. And he was like, we're going to figure out how to invent new important medical therapies together. That's, you know, it's not just a light bulb going off at random. We're going to make this a process, hmm. uh, a biodesign process where we come up with new therapies in any given field. And, and he's like, my theory is we can be dropped into a field um, and over the course of three months, invent something important. Mm. And so the very first thing I developed was a chemotherapy delivery system, also a high flow vascular access that was mm. implanted underneath the skin and accessed with a needle over and over again. Mm. And so I got, I got very good yeah. at making needles that didn't do damage to things after those two first projects. And yeah. that, that high flow access needle was the one I was holding in my hand when I had a bottle in my hand, when I came up with the original idea for Corbin. And that was your, that was your Eureka moment. So, you, you know, you, you, you discovered wine, you know, visiting this this winery in the Napa Valley when you were 16 with a beard. Fake ID or not fake ID, you just looked older. It was in my pocket. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, you, you had this medical side of your business, which was very successful. Then how did the, the core business system come about? I mean, you know, obviously the needles thing, but there must have, was there a moment when you thought, hey, maybe I could do something with these needles? You know, so the key to invention is, is rarely a new technology. It's most commonly what I learned at Pfizer. It's most commonly a unique perspective on the unmet need. It's an, a unique perspective on the problem itself mm. that enables the inventor to invent. Mm. And so, you know, I, I fell in love with wine when I was 16. I'm obviously drinking California wine. I was California, Uberalis, they, these, we're the best wine. You don't need wine for anywhere else. Then I met a professor at, at MIT. She was from Poland and she was like, you know, have you tried Burgundy? <laughs> 
And so I tried Burgundy and fell in love with that. I tried Rhone and fell in love with that with my, my, my wife's family at the time. She, when I got married, her family drank exclusively European wines. And, and what I began to realize as I was advancing in my medical career and meeting physicians in different countries and we were sharing wines together from whatever region they were in was that the magic, one of the, one of the magic parts about wine is that it, it comes in this infinite variety. Uh, that, you know, you, it's not just the great varieties and the 2000 in Italy and, you know, and all the precursors that may exist elsewhere and all the different clones and the growing environments and the people who make it and the weather of that year. There's this infinite Rubik's Cube of experience possible with wine. And I loved that about wine. What I hated about wine was that it came to me in a five serving container. Mm-hmm. And in order to get one sip, I had to sacrifice it all. Yeah. And so I wanted to be able to taste Chardonnay from around the world, taste Cabernet from around the world, taste Syrah from around the world, side by side. And in order to do that, I had to invite a pile of people over mm. that were at the same interest or wanted mm. to taste the same wines. And spend and a lot I, of money on the wines, right? A lot of money on the wine. Yeah. I'm busy. Yeah. I'm traveling mm. all over the place. I'm going into surgery a lot. I can't drink whole bottles. And so I remember sitting at my kitchen table and also my wife, the time she was pregnant with our second kids, so she'd stopped drinking completely. Uh, we didn't agree on wine much anyway. And so uh, I, I, one of us was compromising. And so I, I was writing down what need I was experiencing. Mm. And I always start off with, I need a way to preserve, better preserve an open bottle of wine. And I was like, no, that's not it. If I pull the cork on something and I use one of the current preservation systems, the wine's going to last like four or five days. I'm still going to be on a clock. I'm still going to be drinking that wine until it's gone before I open the next wine. I'll be drinking in series. I want to drink in parallel. And those are and things so like Vacuvan were they, in those days. Which that's was, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, which is and, sort of a suction cap and you pull, yeah. And all sorts of things that yeah. either worked or didn't at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and and mm-hmm. so what working meant to me was, you know, I, I wrote down, I want a way to drink mm-hmm. any amount of wine mm-hmm. from any bottle I own any time I want, yeah. without having to think about when I'm going to drink from it again. Yeah, well, that's it's a, it's a noble aim. But I wonder how long did it take to perfect it? Because at this point, you're you're in your mid twenties, presumably, and just suddenly just come uh, along. I just turned thirty. Yeah. Uh, that son is now twenty four in a cybersecurity program. <laughs> We're in bossy, six foot four. He taps me on the head when he comes <laughs> when I see him. Um, but you know, it took me a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't my day job, right? I I right. I had founded two medical companies and was running them both. Mm-hmm at the time. Um, and, and so, you know, working extremely hard and this was something that I did to relax on weekends, uh, or what I was needles. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, it's, it's more than the needle. So the basic, I remember sticking a needle through the cork and using a syringe to try to suck wine out. And when you do that, you create a vacuum and it pulls the wine back in. So that wasn't working. So I was like, okay, I've got to push the wine out of the bottle into my glass. I have to displace it with something, uh, so that air doesn't get in or want to get in. So I've got to create a positive pressure, essentially inflate the bottle and let that pressure push the wine out. What am I going to use? Mm-hmm. Well, luckily I'm a physicist. So I was like, okay, well, I should use a noble gas. Mm-hmm. Um, also what's readily available, CO2, nitrogen, and argon. Those are all uh, noble gases, are they? Uh, yeah. Argon is a noble gas. Yeah. Uh, nitrogen is a pretty lazy gas. Mm-hmm. It's got three or four known chemical reactions at at, at at earth temperatures. Mm. Uh, CO2 is a highly reactive gas, but um, it's, it's been used in wine. And I, I looked it up online and, and, you know, all these gases have been used with wine. 
to move them around in wineries, mm -hmm. to sparge bottles before mm -hmm. you fill them. So I was like, okay, well, I'll start with these and helium. So helium is the other noble gas that I used, which was a that lot. Would, of that, would be, that would be a laugh, as they say. Oh, yeah. oh, my my <laughs> kids and I breathed it all. <laughs> Singing contests with my three and my five-year-old. So at that time, so but, so you chose you chose argon, right? I mean, I know you use carbon dioxide in your in your new um, sparkling system, the Corrigan yes. system you use, obviously to replace the CO two that you've lost when you open the bottle, as much as anything, I'd imagine. But how? Do, why did you decide that argon was the one? Argon has two really big benefits. Um, one is it doesn't really dissolve in a fluid. Noble gases are lazy; they don't want to be anywhere, and uh, and they want they're loners. They want to be on their own. Uh, and so CO2 and nitrogen both dissolve in a fluid. Mm. And so Guinness beer is nitrogenated. Mm. That's why those tiny bubbles yeah. and other beers are carbonated and sparkling wines are carbonated. Mm. So I found that nitrogen and CO2 could dissolve in a, in a still wine and make them somewhat spritzy. And could change. That's not good, obviously. It and changes the good. character of the wine, right? Yeah, yeah. it really does. Yeah. And so argon doesn't do anything. It's, it's just dead space. Mm. Um, I believe it's the Greek for lazy lazy gas it does mm -hmm. it does nothing uh so it, just, so, so it just it just sits on top of the wine really it, well, yeah. it replaces the liquid that's left the being taken out of the bottle right that's it that's yeah. it and yeah. uh and never lets air get in it's also heavier than oxygen yeah and so i was making prototypes at this time and i gave mm -hmm. one of them to my brother-in-law and he had the habit of leaving the corbin needle so it's a needle a valve a regulator that controls pressure and a source of gas that's what you need to make corbin and uh, and so he had one of these early prototypes and he would leave the needle through the cork over the course of an evening, mm. six, eight hours. Mm. I never did that before. Mm. And with nitrogen, there could be gas exchange because mm. uh, nitrogen's not heavier than oxygen mm. and it'll just let stuff through. And so uh, argon is heavier than oxygen, sort of sits there and it mm. delays um, any ingress of oxygen if someone were to leave the needle through the cork. Mm -hmm. I highly advise removing the needle from the cork soon yeah. after you pour the glass, mm -hmm. um, but people have done it, and so I wanted to make sure it worked for everybody. I, I want to get onto that in a minute, onto the right and the wrong way to use a Corvette, because you, you need a bit of experience, I think, to do it. You do. Just tell us when you, when, you, when you launched. I mean, how many of these units have you sold worldwide? Because lots of different models now, aren't there? So invented in 99, um, Developed a first really good prototype in 2003, made it really good by 2004 when I gave it to a friend as a wedding gift. It was the first one that left my house. That was it. <laughs> yeah. But that, by that time, it had changed the way that I drank wine. So yeah. I was drinking from everything. But I wanted to prove to myself that it worked. And what that meant was I could Corvin a bottle multiple times over five years, be down to a last glass and taste it versus a a bottle of the same wine that had never been touched yeah. and not be able to tell the difference. And, and by definition, you can't do that in six months, can you? You need five right. years, right? I, exactly. I was, yeah. uh, I didn't know, I could have shortcut it by doing mm. some chemical analysis. Mm. I didn't, and this was much more fun. And so I, bought, mm. I got wines from all over the world. I got wines from different vintages. I was blind tasting constantly mm. one month, three months, one year, two years, five years. Mm. Uh, all these different wines on a schedule, big Excel file, calendar invites to make sure that I did these things. Um, I still have some of those bottles left. <laughs> well, I think this is your idea about you know having the biggest by the glass pour program, pouring program in the states in your front room, basically, right? Well, that, in your, in your kitchen, it. I suppose. My 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 wife, she said that um, our our cellar looked like a wine store because I had wines from all over the world. Yeah. Because people would always challenge me, mm. "Hey, does it work with this? Does it work mm. with this? Does it work with old recent? Does it work with Gruner? Yeah. Does it work with you know whatever it was?" Mm. And so I had to get six bottles of whatever that was yeah. in order to test it. And, so, and launched in 04, was it, you say? Was that? 
It was launched in 04, was it? 1999 was the prototype? That was a prototype. I mean, I did testing yeah. for eight years between 2003 and 2011 yeah. um, before I realized that the combination of needle gas pressures worked. And mm. so I launched the company in 2011, mm. uh, launched the product in 2013 in July in the United States, mm. in October of the following year in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and then the rest of Europe later in December of that year. And then in Asia in 2015, uh, last country was Japan or Japan and China. Uh, now we're in over 60 countries. We sold millions of devices. How many millions can you say? I can't say. We're not, we're not sharing. But I, I, <laughs> one number I am allowed to say is that we've served over a quarter billion glasses of wine with Corbin. Which, as an inventor, and with this karmic debt, I think you've paid the karmic debt back. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think about each of those as an opportunity to touch somebody's life. That Corvin mm. was involved in a glass that they enjoyed or didn't, or in some way experienced that they would not have otherwise in the same way. Mm. And uh, you know, it's that. I keep track of that. I keep track of that with my medical devices. How many have been implanted? How many patients have benefited uh, from the different medical devices? Yeah, and I suppose when you hear nice stories about the way people have enjoyed wines, from the story I told you, you know, about yeah. about, about the wines we had during during lockdown. But just tell us if there's a right and a wrong way to use a carbon. Yeah, just tip, share a few tips with us, particularly about the way wine should be stored and, you know, how many pours you can do and, uh, you know, how, many, how, how often you sparge the wine, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. So I kicked myself for the instructions that we launched with. Um, they were hieroglyphics and nobody understood them. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so I love this opportunity to sort of get people to have the best possible outcome, both in terms of gas preservation as, uh, as well as wine preservation. Mm. And so we have three systems now, the, the timeless system, which is the one with a needle, pivot, which does not have a needle um, and works with its own stopper and sparkling. Uh, we also have a, a new system that, that we can talk about later. But mm. um, with Timeless, there is a really important set of things that, that get you the best outcome. Mm. Uh, we call it the four C's of Corvin, uh, mm. clean, clear, cellar, and cork. Clean. I don't know why, but people think of Corvin as a corkscrew and you yeah. never wash your corkscrew. Yeah. Corvin is not a corkscrew. It is a glass. It mm. touches wine and you should wash it or mm. else... Uh, Acetobacter, mm. Brutanomyces, Saccharomyces can grow out on the inside of the system, and you don't want to inject that into your next bottle of wine. Yeah. So hot water through the spout mm. uh, where the wine comes out at the end of an evening, if you've used it, mm. all you need to do to clean. Mm. Okay. That's important. Clearing. Um, the system uh, uses argon, but if you take the system and you've poured one wine, and now you go to the next wine, mm. and you just stick the needle through and, and you... Uh, start injecting argon. The very first thing that's going to go into that bottle mm. is whatever wine was last served in the in the needle. Yeah. In the needle, yeah, and and or oxygen or air mm. that has gone into the needle. Mm. And so clearing, I like to clear the valve and the needle by just giving the trigger a quick press just before you go into the next bottle. Yeah, that makes sure that the system is primed with argon, so you don't inject that into a bottle. Uh, cellar, store the wines on their side, keep them mm. cold, keep it in yeah. the dark. People okay. think argon's magical. It's not. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't protect the wine from light, heat, vibration. So yeah. all the storage rules with wine still are in play. Yeah. And then cork. Um, Corvin Timeless does not work with every cork. 
uh, plastic corks don't work. There's a brilliant cork by Nomacork that uses a biopolymer. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't reseal because it's a mm -hmm. polymer. It's not elastic. Um, Corbin relies on the elasticity of natural cork in order to be effective. Uh, we work with Diam, we work with uh, other crumbled composites or capped composite quartz, technical quartz they're called. Anything made from natural cork we work with, mm. but the polymers we don't. And not plastic, right? Not plastic. Yeah. And so also as a cork gets older, mm. uh, it can lose, especially if it's poorly stored, it can lose its elasticity. Mm. And so um, what I like to do, taught by a master of wine to do this, I wrap my hand around the neck of the bottle before I corbin it, push down with my thumb on the cork. If it slides, don't use timeless. Okay. Uh, yeah. Cork is failing. Um, either yeah. use pivot or pull the cork and drink it. <laughs> that, that makes sense. And what about conserving gas? Because replacement capsules, you know, they're not very expensive, but you know, they, they, they stack up, don't they? Exactly. How, how do you do that? So uh, multiple short presses on the trigger are much better than one long one. Ah. And so you save gas by pulsing your finger quickly on yeah. the trigger until you get the flow rate you like. Ah, um, I didn't know that. And then, that's it. That's just saving some money, right? Yeah, there we go. Uh, doing that, the record is 22 glasses for a capsule. So we say 15 uh, yeah. on our website. Yeah. If you hold the trigger forever, yeah. the pressure will go up to one and a half atmospheres. That's what our regulator yeah. does. It limits the pressure. Yeah. Um, but that's a lot of gas if the bottle's half empty. Mm. Uh, so yeah. you don't need one and a half atmospheres all the time. So multiple short presses to get the flow rate you like. That's... Tell us the solutions you suggest with, with older corks, which aren't quite as elastic. I, I think I read somewhere that you recommended people use super glue. That basically oh, actually, super glue, super glue is what I use for plastic corks. Ah. Um, so I cut the foil to see what the cork is on pretty much every bottle. And if I see a plastic cork and I really like that one and I want to have it the way that I drink with Corbin, mm -hmm. uh, I do use gel form super glue to seal it. Mm -hmm. uh, that might sound crazy. You can, there's an alternative, uh, wax. Uh, wax isn't perfect, but I actually went online. I bought uh, bottling wax uh, on Amazon. It's like lots of little pellets of red wax. Yeah. You just put it on the top and melt it with a lighter. Uh, and it seals over the holes there we go. Top pretty tip. effectively. Top and tip. so I actually use wax on really old bottles. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll wax the cork if it's not a wax bottle. Yeah. And then Corvin through the wax the next pour, pour it, and then melt the wax again. Uh, so you, you, you're reusing the same hole effectively, yeah. right? Okay, uh, you can even hit different holes. It doesn't yeah. matter okay. uh, as long as you melt the wax again. It, it seems yeah. to help yeah. uh, with D older corks. D does the system work better with some wine styles than others? I mean, does it work better with, with I don't know, more tannic wines, for example, or white uh, wines? I mean, what, what do you think? There are wines that are sort of bomb-proof from an oxygen, oxygen mm. standpoint, right? I mean, like um, young Nebbiolo actually mm. probably benefits from, mm. from misuse of corks. Yeah, yeah, you actually want some more air in there, right? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so there are wines that are more sensitive, older, low sulfite uh, wines, um, natural wines are are going to have less sulfur dioxide to protect against, protect against oxidation yeah. or less free and total SO2. So um, you want to make sure you take the best care with those wines, follow yeah. the clean, clear cellar and cork, and you should get great results. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of success with Burgundy. Uh, we did blind tastings with the Burgundy producers out to five years in their wines. So it's absolutely possible to get the wines to last for a long time, mm -hmm. independent of the way that they were made. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to use the right technique. Yeah. On I mean, it's a game changer for them because they're pouring all these very expensive wines. And yeah. instead of having to open a bottle and just hope that some other journalists, importers, sommeliers happen by over the next few days, which is 
often the case, um, they can suddenly do small pores. I mean, you know, Meo Camise, I've been there and they use Corobin. I'm sure there are others doing it as well now. No, we're, it was, so as part of the launch strategy for Corobin, one of the things we did right was go and visit all the wine producers and show them Corobin before we launched mm. uh, because we use our product on theirs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, I didn't want one of them walking into a restaurant, get surprised by somebody using a Corbin to serve their wine with a glass. And what mm-hmm. the heck is that? Yeah. So took tours uh, with Charles Curtis, Master Wine, mm-hmm. uh, and this wonderful woman, Flory Beth Kennedy, uh, around Europe, mm-hmm. and Lucas Pia also, mm-hmm. uh, who's a sommelier at LBE, around Europe to introduce Corbin to the different wine regions. And what it showed me was that France is not a monolithic block of one culture. Mm-hmm. It's multiple cultures. There's the yeah. Parisian culture, there's Bordeaux, and mm-hmm. there's Burgundy, there's Champagne. They are very different from yeah, each other. Yeah, don't even mention Corsica or something like that. Yeah, yeah. oh my goodness. So uh, one of my favorite parts of Coravin has been the eno-tourism that I've done, albeit for Coravin business. Mm-hmm. Um, I still get to wind up in all these wonderful places with these wonderful people. Burgundy... I had just been kicked out of two wineries at, in Bordeaux. Like I showed them Corbin, tried to give them one, and they just walked me to the door. Uh, you you know, tried to out. give them one? Oh, yeah, tried. And, and they're like, this is going to be used for counterfeiting. This is going to decrease the consumption of our wines. You know, this is, uh, you know, this is a disaster. You know, um, I, hope you, I hope you fail, right? You know, uh, not That's very polite. <laughs> yeah, I, except for some notable exceptions, Lynchbage, Aubaye, Aubriand, these guys were, welcomed us with uh, a really but, but two, two in a row. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. First growth. <laughs> Walked me out. Um, First growth. Worked, worked you out. Right, but, but uh, Burgundy was yeah. an, an emotional, mm. positive the first guy that I showed it to was Jean Charles, who uh, ran Bonne de Matre, still mm. owned it back then, mm. and uh, tall, elegant mm. yeah, man. Yeah, lovely man. Yeah, yeah and I, I had just been kicked out uh, of Bordeaux, and I showed up with a bottle of Bordeaux in Burgundy and uh, to demonstrate to him. And he's mm. up on the top of this hill, mm. and it's Corton. He owns more Grand Cru vineyards than anybody else. I'm scared out of my skull. Mm. And, uh, and I show him Corvin and how it works, and he says, can you wait just one second? And then he goes away and he comes back with a 1991 Bonne de Matre, uh, Corton Charlemagne. And he says, this is the last wine that my mother made. Can we use your system on this? I don't have many bottles left and I'd like to see how it tastes. It was a, you know, it was the opposite. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Bordeaux. The Bordeaux and, and Burgundy, because of the reasons you've said, I mean, they, yeah. they have no production. Yeah. Interestingly, Champagne has been the same thing with sparkling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Coravin has its critics. I mean, not me, I must say, because I use it a lot. I think it's very good. A couple of wine writers I can think of who say that a fully open bottle delivers a different experience to something that's had one or more or or, or even five pours with Coravin. What would you say to them? Yeah, I think there's two reasons not to like Coravin. One is cultural. I finish the bottle. You know, we pull the cork, we drink the bottle. That's the experience. Somehow the Lung volume of a 17th century English glass blower mm. uh, produced the right volume for wine mm. to be consumed, right? Mm. right? Mm. At 750 milliliters. Th- with with that pushback, hey, you're interfering with the culture. I say, hey, look, I still open full bottles. Mm. I just did uh, mm. on Wednesday with friends. Um, we all brought a bottle and we opened up the bottles and we we drank through the vast majority of them. Um, 
I still do that. But there are all of these times when I just want a perfect glass mm. or I want to taste across three different ones. Corvin yeah. is not trying to replace what already exists. We're mm. trying to add situations that you now have the freedom to taste or drink whatever you want. Mm. So we're an addition, not a subtraction. We're not taking mm. away or replacing. So that's that's my strongest cultural argument, that there's a different utility to Corvin. Mm. Um, you still open bottles. The, the technical one um, is uh, normally what I do is I spend time explaining clean, clear, cellar, and cork. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that we did was invite people to blind tastings. Yeah. So we did blind tastings in all across the world, uh, mm. all across Europe, all across Asia, all across the United States, in wine producing regions, in major cities, with top winemakers and top sommelier, and recorded the results. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, we've done five-year blind tastings in, mm. in Burgundy. We've done, mm. we just did a 19-year blind tasting with a Hall Cabernet with one of my early test wines in Napa Valley. And zero people correctly guessed which was the course. And what about as the bottle gets emptier? I mean, and you've got more gas to liquid, a greater gas to liquid ratio. So I found actually that it's not the volume of wine that's in the bottle that matters, mm. but that what is implied by a bottle being lower in wine, and that is that it's been accessed multiple times. Mm. And if it is incorrectly accessed right. multiple times yeah. without cleaning, without clearing, or it's not stored properly, yeah. it is more subject to failure okay. yeah. than one that's been accessed only once. So yeah. interestingly, it's not the volume missing, it's the number of times it was accessed and who did it. Okay, <laughs> and how they did it, right? Yeah. How they did it. You've talked about this, you know, by the glass program that you had in your front room or your kitchen for so long. 800 um, different wines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are you still a great wine explorer or do you tend to stick with, with classics? I mean, in a way, has, has Coravin changed the way you drink? I am, so my love of wine is still like this. Mm. Um, I love a $10 bottle of wine that's well-made as much as a $1,000 bottle of wine mm. that's well-made. Mm. I love exploring. I just had Separavi from a Georgian winemaker in Australia. Wow. And she's bottling Separavi in Australia and in Georgia. And she brought two of her bottles to an event I was hosting. That's in, great. Yeah. And I learned. She's like, this is Australian Separabi. This is Georgian Separabi. And I'm like, awesome. It's good grape <laughs> as well. Very good grape. She gave me two bottles. I'm, it's yeah. delicious. No, I would say, you know, that. you talked about noble gases. It's a noble grape, I think. It's, it, just, it not, it's just not planted in that place. It's beautiful. The, yeah. I love both of the wines. Mm. The Australian wine, and this is what I love about wine. Here's mm. a Georgian making Separavi mm. in Australia, mm. um, which is shameful to call the new world of wine, given the age of some of their vines there. Mm. Um, but it's a stunningly well-made wine that is completely different with some hints of similarity mm. from the same clones in Georgia. Mm. You know, this is what I love about wine. Mm. It's speaking to place, the same person, mm. the same year, mm. obviously different uh, summer winter cycles. And I get to have these two incredible experiences that I don't know how you can have sitting at a table talking to somebody without um, this magical beverage. Do you have a big wine collection? I mean, not, not that it would mean anything if you did really, but. Yeah, um, it's it, it, <laughs> half the size that it used to be. I unfortunately was a uh, my marriage was a was a was a victim of the pandemic. Uh, so uh, recently, and you lost was, half the wine, did you? I lost half my wine. Yeah. 
that's okay. I'm uh, sorry to hear that. Is that you know it's sad. You know it's um it is it, it, it's you know you evolve over time like wine evolves over time and and if you don't evolve in a way that you you, you both like it makes sense to split. Um, but she has half my Corbin stock, and I'm very happy that she does. And she's got half the seller, uh, and I'm very glad that she does. Well, let's hope she's enjoying it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> one of the wines that she loved uh, that I really appreciate is I was given a bottle by uh, Franco Chinoise, which is a wine producer in, in China, mm. uh, that is one of the oldest collaborations between China and France mm. to make great wine coming back into the 60s. They didn't sell their wine. They gave me a bottle they have never sold. Uh, and and that's and that was one of my. She's like, I did, love that. Did you keep that? Oh no, she got it. No, did you go? It's, oh, it's great. It was a very yeah. amicable device of the seller. But to, to, just tell us a little bit about how. I mean, you got. I believe you got not one successful business, but two very successful businesses. I just wonder how you how you get away from it. How how do you relax? And are you still inventing things? Have you got other things that you're working on at the moment? Is that a way of re- relaxation in a way? It is. Uh, invention is. It's almost so pleasurable to me that it's a carrot I hold out in front of me if I have hard work to get through, saying, well, once I get through this, I get to invent again. Um, In medicine, we're so highly regulated in so many different ways Mm -hmm. that creativity isn't stifled, but it's delayed. Uh, it takes a long time. And then, of course, you're dealing with human lives. So mm. you're going to be doing a lot of testing before you bring it into the human. And then once you're in first human, you're going to be doing a lot of clinical trials before you're selling. And mm. so it's a very long and protracted uh, process. The, one of the great things about Coravin is that that's not necessary, that mm. we have to test to prove that it works, that it's safe, mm. and then we can launch. And so our aerator, which I absolutely love, um, uh, it's a little shower head that goes in the it's front. It's good. Of the I, like, I like the little shower head. Yeah, it's yeah, good. It, it, yeah. And it works, right? I mean, it's, it, it truly uh, decimates tannins. So I, I always say to people, if you like the tannins, don't, don't use the aerator. Um, and it has other benefits on wines that are, have too much dissolved sulfur. It shakes it out. It's like the Molly Duker shake in a, in a, in a shower head. Um, but that was from the time I had the idea in Australia on a plane back from Australia to Boston, it was fewer than a hundred days before that was on the market. Wow. Um, and that yeah. kind of freedom to invent is something that I love yeah. about Corvin. And then I'm, I'm working in medicine uh, still. The way I relax is I run. Um, I, you know, I, I have too many topics to deal with every day. Mm. And I find that running allows me to concentrate on only one thing mm. other than running. And so I'm a, I'm a distance runner. Um, by necessity, because it calms me and lets me focus. On what? Not on running, but on something else? Yeah, I, I pick one topic consciously before I start and say, I'm going to come to a conclusion. Right? And so, then that could be 26.2 miles. Well, some of the runs go longer than others. <laughs> don't, don't solve world peace on a run. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, listen, Greg, it's been fantastic. Thank you much for sharing um, just your, your knowledge and enthusiasm for this incredible product that, that I must say, you know, as I said, I, I use it and I'm a big fan. I think it's really good. So great talking to you. Thanks for taking time out of your very busy day. And going to have a run later or not? You might come up with another idea. You never know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I look forward to running. And thank you for all the work that you do. I mean, I think contextualizing what wine is, is one of the greatest challenges. That's the complex solving that Rubik's Cube for people so that yeah. Uh, that they understand what's going on uh, and have the have a lack of fear and a lack of hesitation uh, to explore this. I mean, how lucky are we to work in this field? <laughs> I think I think that's a great, <laughs> great quote to end on. Thank you, Greg. Good to see you. Thanks, Tim. Be well. See you soon. Bye. Well, Greg is one impressive guy. 
and we owe him a massive debt of gratitude for changing the way we enjoy wine. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is champagne and sparkling wine expert, Essie Avalan, master of wine. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.